in this episode of Boss Files. We reach over a billion consumers a month right now, and we have some of the largest brands in the world for digital. Tim Armstrong, CEO of Oath, the new company that brings together AOL and Yahoo. Why he left his high-flying gig at Google more than a decade ago to rebuild AOL, and the challenge that lies ahead as he leads Oath to compete against the likes of Facebook and Google. Plus, why he says it's a mistake to count Amazon out of this space, and how he sees the issue of fake news online. Humans want to become members of brands where they understand what they're getting, how they're getting it, uh, and what they're involved in, and what they believe in. Also, why he's committed the company to having 50% female leadership by 2020. His daughter's impact on that decision. Here's my conversation with Tim Armstrong. Tim, thank you for doing this. It's Happy nice to, to have see you here. We've spoken many times, I've interviewed you many times, but never before as the CEO of Oath. This is a totally new adventure for you, um, the combined AOL and Yahoo. What is different for you today as you sit here as CEO of this combined new company than it, than it ever was before? Yeah, I think, you know, at the, at the outside landscape, the world is changing so much. So uh, I think our company changes, but really the world's changing. Consumers, if you look at the adoption of mobile that's happened and the fact that there's another half of the world's population that's going to come on, the world is, is changing right now dramatically overall. So that ch- creates a lot of change inside the company. And then inside the company, you know, we went from being AOL, which right. was an internet pioneer and, and had scale and was an exciting opportunity, you know, today we're part of Verizon uh, overall, but we also just bought Yahoo. So we reach over a billion consumers a month right now, and we have some of the largest brands in the world for digital, the, the Huffington Post and TechCrunch yeah. and Yahoo and AOL. And so it's a, uh, the, the role that the company plays has changed dramatically because we're super serving these deep membership communities that are on mobile and, and digital. And two is for partners, you know, we've become one of the largest potential partners in the world for other companies, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. So things have been, things have dramatically shifted in the last two years, and I think they're going to shift even more in the future. Super challenging, but also really exciting. Challenging, exciting, time-consuming. I would assume you're busier now than you've ever been. Yeah, uh, I think now I'm spending more time doing more things ever than I have in the last 20 years. So then please explain to me how you find time to do what I read you do, which is called thinking time, that you, Tim, block off seven to 10 hours a week to dive into a topic, whether it's China or what have you. Do you still do that? Yeah, I do. And if so, what are you doing this week? I have uh, thinking time actually later this afternoon in the middle of advertising week in New York, which is a very busy week. Big deal. And so this week, what I'm thinking about is uh, essentially our mobile strategy, which we're coming down to the end of our 2018 planning cycle. And there's a couple of decisions we need to make around the company. So I've been studying essentially how consumers interact with advertising on mobile and what are all the global properties that we see uh, happening with consumers in mobile and advertising. So we're going to make some big decisions. So I've been spending a lot of the last week just studying that one subject. And you don't look at your... Well, maybe for this one, you can look at your mobile phone, right. but you don't. I mean, this thinking time, when a lot of times you're looking at and studying things that are totally unrelated to your business. Is that right? Yeah. So there are time, like I'll spend, I've spent a lot of time last year actually studying um, individual productivity time, for instance, is one subject. So I will spend hours and hours and hours basically researching, reading, talking to people outside the company about what's the most productive use of time. And one of the best projects I worked on this year was how do you actually organize one day for who you are as a person, what your skill sets are, who you have to interact with. And I've dramatically changed my calendar, which has made me individually more productive, 
but now that I've done it for myself, I start to look around the company and, my, and even my outside friends I've talked to about really? it. And there's, I think there's dramatic ways that you can shift kind of your day and who you are as a person to maximize you know, both What together. were you doing wrong? Uh, well, one thing is I'm a real super morning person. So in the mornings, I'm generally most productive, uh, have the most ideas and can really focus. And during that time period, I had, had stacked a lot of meetings in that time period. So I would go through that time period basically in a bunch of rote routine type mm -hmm. things, whereas the company kind of counts you know, on, on me and the other leaders to spend our time making sure that we're heading in the right direction and thinking about some of the bigger things the company needs to do. So I blocked off a time in the morning to basically read. I read for an hour uh, when I get up, uh, exercise. And then I typically have a block of time just to think through what are the, my most critical um, elements. So I used to start my day super early in the morning. My day still starts super in the morning, but it's more customized for you know what my skill set is and what I'm good at and what I can bring to the company. And then the things that in the afternoon are probably easier lifts for me in terms of that all around. Move, move that all around. We know the strategy for you and for Oath is is going after the brand space. And the way that you've described it, Tim, is is going after the brand space, like how Google has gone after search, like how Facebook has gone after social. There are some skeptics who, as you know, have said, where's the value in combining AOL and Yahoo? Like, why is this different? Why is this innovative? Your response to them is, thank God they don't see the opportunity. Right. So from this landscape I sit in, we have to differentiate. We're in a competitive environment where you have Google and Facebook and Amazon and Tencent and Alibaba. These are all gold medal performers, mm -hmm. you know, in the world. And our job is to actually perform in an area that's differentiated for us. So the, the worst possible outcome for us is people say, oh, my God, you're copying Google, you're copying Facebook, you're copying <laughs> Your former Alibaba. employer, by the way, right. Google. We'll uh, get into that right. in a minute. Um, but what we've decided to do is brands are really important. I think if you look at all the things happening in the world where people want brand trust, brand safety, they want to know where their news comes from, all those things, those things are important to human beings. And from our standpoint, the technology platforms are growing and they're going to keep growing. But over time, humans want to become members of brands where they understand what they're getting, how they're getting it, uh, and what they're involved in and what they believe in. And so we've created a brand company versus a single platform company. And a lot of the people we compete against basically have giant singular platforms. We partner with all of them because we bring differentiation in brands. And I, I think if you're a member of TechCrunch and you love tech, or you're a member of the Huffington Post and you love news, or you're a member of Yahoo Finance and you love finance, mm -hmm. we bring a very deep level community sense to those verticals. You bring up the issue of trust and news source. And uh, obviously right now in the headlines is what Facebook is dealing with. I mean, ha having fake news posted on Facebook during the election, and how do you root that out? And how do you make consumers aware of that? Is there an opportunity for Oath right now in this environment where people are questioning these things? Yeah, one of the things happening in the world today is when you look at the issues with fake news and people posting things that may not be real, the reason we went with our strategy of being a brand company is because brands do one thing. You understand what the brand stands for and you understand what the curation of that information stands for. So if you're on Facebook and you see the Huffington Post, you're going to understand that the Huffington Post editors took the time and energy to make sure that's real news. And so from our standpoint, we believe brands are going to become more important in the future, not less important, both to a Facebook, but also to that consumer population. Are you more careful now than ever, Tim, given 
<clears throat> given what has happened with fake news and, and given, you know, because, for example, Huffington Post, it, it's not just your staff writers that are writing things. I mean, there's a lot of contributors, for example. So is this a time to be more careful than ever? Yeah, I think the Huffington Post, like one of the things the Huffington Post just did, which is an amazing testament to the people at the Huffington Post, is they just did a Listen to America tour where because of all the feedback they've heard in the industry, not only are we careful about it and things on the Huffington Post are highly edited, they also went on a bus tour to, I think, 30 different states in the last few weeks and individually met with consumers um, and took you know, hundreds or thousands of interviews from people. So not only do we curate and really careful about information, I'd say in the media brand landscape, we're probably the number one company in the last few months that's actually been with consumers and understanding them on a person-by-person basis. So that's a huge enhancement for us as a business. Your, your goal uh, for, for Oath, one of them, your monetary goal for Oath is pretty lofty, between 10 to $20 billion in annual revenue by 2020. How do you get there? Yeah, so that's, that's what we're working on today. So that, you know, the company today does billions of dollars in revenue, but for us to be relevant to our customers yeah. and to grow, we would like to get to over $10 billion in revenue. And our pathway right now is the strategy around that has to do two things. One, it has to connect with mobile uh, very seriously, and two, it has to connect with video. And those are the two things I'd say that we're building out stepping stone-wise for 2020. The Yahoo deal was a huge piece of building in that direction, but now it's up to our team to innovate organically uh, to get there, and I'd say we're we're in the early stages of the stepping stones to get there, but we're really hopeful that we're going to make that happen. Uh, complicating things for you guys was the data breach for Yahoo. Can you give us some insight onto how much that has complicated this process, and how things look from your perspective now? Sure. So when we did the Yahoo deal, one of the things that was was a surprise in the middle of the deal was uh, basically the information that happened around the large data breach. Right. Today, we're in a situation where we're investing in a good way, I think, in all the security and technology over it. So the output of it has been for us to be really laser focused on it. The second piece, I would say, is it delayed the deal for almost a a year. So from a standpoint of the 2020 goals you just talked about, they're probably 2021. Okay, you know, so you're now, shifting them. No, we're, we're not going to shift them. We're, we're, okay. we're going to try to get there. But, um, but I, I think the, the, the downside of that was there was a lot of information and a lot of brand uh, uh, information about Yahoo out there with the breach. So for consumers and advertisers, I think that was something that we struggled with during the deal process to figure out how to get through that. But we got through it. The, the second piece, though, that's a silver lining in it is I think from our standpoint, we had more time to plan the deal uh, overall, which is we weren't counting on that, but it's allowed us to have a much deeper, faster strategy. We're 90 days into the deal, and we're operating almost as a fully integrated a- entity, and that, that was helpful in the planning process. What's the lesson when that, do you remember the moment, the morning, when that crossed your desk, and you said, I would assume, oh my God? Yeah, I think the when we found out about it, um, you know, we operate in an environment which is security uh, deep all the time. So I think for hearing security information and what's happening overall, I'm kind of attuned to it and, and used to it. The level of the Yahoo breach was obviously larger than what we would have expected, so we were surprised. But I think because of the way our team operates and the company operates and Verizon operates, I think our first thing was, what, what, how do we help the consumers out? Like, what's the consumer yeah. process here? And then the second piece was, okay, let's take a step back and say, how, what does this mean for the deal overall? So that was, you know, we kind of heard about it late in the summer of the beginning of the deal process. And, you know, it took us a few months, actually, to actually thoughtfully go through it with Yahoo and with ourselves to understand it. And, you know, I, I remember getting the call. 
I remember uh, hearing the information, but I think for us, we're very operational in that regard. So it kind of clicked us into kind of higher gear of operation around it. And, you know, there was a lot of outputs from it uh, in terms of the deal process, but I think the team did a really good job of it. We, we're, we have an exceptional group of executives at the company, and I think everyone handled it really professionally. One of the things that you are now working on doing at Oath is a commitment you've made to make the company 50-50 women in leadership positions by 2020. That's, that's a lofty goal. Where does the company stand now in terms of women in leadership? Yeah, so women in leadership, one thing that's probably not widely known about the company is we put the largest investment into women's leadership stories into a brand called Makers, which you're familiar with. all about with. Makers. Uh, you know, years ago, five or six years ago. And that was our initial investment into the women's leadership space to really understand it, both from an individual, individual women leaders, but also how do you change the landscape for all the issues you're hearing about today globally with women's uh, leadership. And I'd say the 50-50 goals came out of our not just a uh, – a gunshot approach to say let's let's go for this it came out of five or six years of understanding the space and and this is my personal take on it after spending time in the women's leadership space for five or six years is the amount of risk that we need to take as a business to get to 50 50 is extreme and uh, that risk has to be treated like a business model the same way that we would go after internet content or internet advertising and compete with you know the the big fang companies the changes that need to happen in terms of women's leadership, diversity, and changing the corporate dynamic around that require the same amount of risk-taking uh, overall. So we, inside the company, have changed one of our values. We had this kind of value called pay it forward, which was like try to help people and move things forward. And about four or five months ago, I changed the value. I called our head of uh, communications and marketing and said, for the internal employees, let's change it to call to action, which is let's treat this issue like it's a business model issue and we have a burning platform, what would we do as a burning platform for women's leadership to change that uh, dynamic? And we've done a number of different things around it. In the 2018 plan we're doing, I would significantly think that we'll have uh, major initiatives happening in women's leadership, both inside our own company and outside the company. And I would just say there's a few things we've already done. One is we have one of the largest VC uh, funds in the world for women called Built by Girls which is one of the only funds that funds women startups. Overall, that's number one. Two is we put a huge investment into Makers, the, the women's leadership brand. And now we've taken Makers to about 50 other major corporations to do Makers programs inside of those corporations uh, overall. And then the third thing is we're um, heavily involved in terms of STEM initiatives and some of the things for women's tech, which a lot of companies are involved in, but we're tying it directly to the funding of women companies directly to makers and directly to how we promote women internally uh, from those initiatives. And what would you say now, because you're talking about overall leadership at Oath, 50% of the top jobs will be women. Right. So what is it now? What would you say, 20, 25? You're referring to 30% uh, okay. range right now. And I think to get there, it requires us to um, promote from inter internally, uh, hire from the outside, obviously, and then um, in some cases for us to create new positions in areas where we're going to, into the new businesses right. we're going into, we're going to have new areas that uh, women can lead. But, but what what sparked this for you, Tim? I mean, other than being, uh, it looks great, and right. it's great to advance women, and we know all the data shows that companies that have an equal number of men and women perform better. Right. But was there someone who came to you and said, 
we need to do this? Did you look at the numbers and say we need more diversity of thought? Well, I, I be, I've spent a lot of personal time on Makers over the years, from the founding of it, uh, although my wife is the one who found the project, so we, we've been both uh, involved in it. I had one conversation with Marlo Thomas and Gloria Steinem. Uh, we That'll were do it. We were going down to a meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, at somebody's house, and uh, I was in the back of a car, and I was talking to him about this issue. This is about probably four and a half or five years ago, and I said, you know, one of the things I'd be willing to do is launch a women's only company, like all women, all leadership, all people who work at the company are women. And Gloria Steinem said, Tim, that's the opposite of, um, of what we need. We need somebody like you in your position to essentially take more risk inside of your own ecosystem. And by the way, companies perform better when there's men and women. So let, yeah. don't think about women only, think about how to combine that. So my wheels have been turning, you know, on that over the years. And I, and I, I honestly think this, I, I, if I, we're, we're not the biggest company in the world, we're not the most profitable, um, but one thing we do have is we have an investment in the space already, so if there's one company in the world that should try to lead this, it should be us. And if there's one contribution our company can make is why don't we make a, con even if we fail miserably, we will learn so much that we can share with all these other companies we're partnered with in terms of the maker's effort. And it's something that uh, I feel passionate about and I think a lot of our, our teams do also. So what about uh, those who think, you know the book, Man Down. Yeah. What about those who look at it and think, this is going to mean man down? This is going to mean that men aren't going to get roles that they should get, et cetera. What do you say to those skeptics? I mean, I think it's really the opposite way to look at it, which is the enhancement that's possible by having more women uh, leaders is actually an enhancement for the entire corporation. And I, I would say for me personally, I worked for a woman uh, leader right when I got out of college. She changed the whole trajectory of my career. She's the one who told me to write goals down every year. So every Thanksgiving, I spend the, I do the thinking time, but in Thanksgiving week, I spend the entire week thinking about goals for next year. And, and the woman I work for taught me that, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And so I think instead of thinking about who gets a job, who doesn't get a job, the question is, how do you have an enhanced relationship between people at work, whether it's women leaders or male leaders, yeah. and how do you grow? things overall. And I, I think that every piece of data you see says having a more diverse workforce and having more women uh, involved in it actually leads to better outcomes, better growth. You know, we were one of the companies that had essentially a 50-50 board of directors that were men, women, and uh, you know we beat the S&P 500 while we were public for the time period we were public. So I'm not only believe in it, but I've seen it. And uh, I don't think people should be as concerned about a man down situation yeah. than a company up uh, situation overall. It sounds like to me all of the data as you strive to reach this goal is going to be totally public out there. Yes. Yeah, so we're so the answer is uh, yes. What I would say is, and we just had a big discussion about this inside the company, is the releasing the retroactive for backward-looking data is important overall. But what I want to release is the data going forward. How do you make progress? What things worked? What things didn't work? Overall, so what we're working on now is how do we take our current metrics and then show what are the incremental things that helped move those metrics uh, forward? And and, and, we're and as you know, Salesforce, for example, Mark Benioff realized, oh, we have a problem. Some of these women in the same positions as men are not making enough, yeah. are not making equal pay. So he put the numbers out there. They spent you know a few million bucks to 
fix it yep. and was very transparent with that process. Right. Is that going to be something similar on the on the pay side that we see yes. for you guys? So I, I would say one is we're trying to fix our pay systems as the company have come together overall yeah. to basically look at that and we're working through all the data right now for 2018 to make sure that those adjustments get, get made. I'd say the second thing, have, we have looked into this fairly deeply over time and I think there's um, correcting things is the right thing to do now long-term, the right thing to do is to basically look at the different points, and I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. When women come into a business, if you have a woman and a man come into a business, and over the next five years, the man is more aggressive for asking for a raise each year. And Which the woman, we know men are. Yes, and men are, and women are less aggressive. Over time, you start with an immediate, and by yeah. the way, if you do it in the, in the first job, the first time you get hired, and you start with an immediate gap because the person says, yeah, I'd love to come work for you, but I'd like to get paid a little bit more, that gap starts you know, starts right away. right away. And then the challenge becomes basically that gap will grow over time if the, either the company or the behavior of the individuals doesn't change. So there's that issue. The second issue is when, um, if women or men are taking time off from work to have children and then they come back, uh, overall, did they miss cycles uh, in that of yeah. comp changes, those things? That's another issue. And I'd say the, the final one is just from a company perspective is a lesson we've learned. I think keeping better data records of those things over time so yeah. it becomes an operational thing inside the company is important. And, and I think that's why the releasing of a bunch of data has been important because people are starting to look backwards saying, oh, you know, wow, this is an issue, how this behaves. Uh -huh. so we're trying to also think how you innovate those early cycles so you don't end up in a late uh, process. Fascinating. One of the points you bring up is, is paid parental leave. And this is why when I sat down with Melinda Gates, right. she is pushing paid family leave, not just right. maternity leave, yep. but paternity leave. Right. Because if men can take as much time off as their, their wives having children, you know, it isn't just the women that get set back right. when it comes to these things as you're talking about in the workforce. I know you guys are still working out what your, yep. frankly, I think paid leave strategy is going to be at the new company, right? At Oath? Well, we, do you, yeah. Do we, you see it for, for fathers and mothers? Yeah, we, we have a policy for both. So for women and men, maternity and paternity leave. Okay. And uh, basically, essentially, it goes from eight weeks to 16 weeks, depending on the situation, country, uh, all those things. And I, one of the things we're working on for 2018 is, how do you maximize uh, the time, uh, both for, for really a family leave, uh, essentially what it is. And so we're hopeful that we're gonna get to a place where we'll have no changes uh, backwards from putting the companies together in that. As a matter of fact, we'll have enhancements up in terms of the time and, uh, and ability for both mothers and fathers to take time off. And I think it's, it's a meaningful benefit. People care about it and uh, it's, it's it's a really good opportunity for the family, I think, out of the gates. But you, uh, you're a father of three. Yes. I assume they're not that old, but back in the day, you know, 15 years ago or so, you didn't get any of this, right? Uh, no, when I was coming up, there was really, these benefits didn't really exist yeah. uh, as much. And I remember we were having our last child. I was at work. Uh, my wife went into labor. I drove back from New York City. I walked in the house. She walked, as I was walking in, walked out, took my keys, drove herself uh, to the hospital, and I, uh, I stayed with the two kids until I could find uh, somebody to babysit the kids, and I made right. it to the hospital about 15 minutes before my last daughter was born. So well, at least you made it. I made it. And but then, I mean, but then I was right back at work, you know, for a couple days later. I, I remember asking my, my mom, well, when did my dad, who was a litigator, busy job, when did he go back to work after I was born? Now, this was like 35 years ago. Yeah. But she said, oh, I think he was at work, you know, like the next day. Yeah. And th so times are changing right, right now so rapidly. Yeah. 
But businesses seem to be saying from every CEO I interview, um, it doesn't hurt the bottom line, it enhances it in terms of retention to give this time. Yeah, yeah I think most what you find is that in these, uh, in these benefit areas, most people are so thankful that the company gave them the ability to not feel guilty about being out mm -hmm. and that the company supports it. And by the way, this goes back to the executives how the executives treat those benefits in terms of whether or not they use them or not sends a message you know, down. So we're always trying to press people to take vacation, take their benefit leaves, because it really helps people at the company not feel pressure that they can't go take advantage of those benefits. And, and it's important. I think also many of the fathers I talk to, you know, they like to take paternity leave a little bit later uh, right. after the baby's been born. And, and in some cases, they like to take it right away. But it gives them flexibility as a family to figure out what's the best way to use the benefit. Was there anything personal for you? I mean, you're the father of two daughters. Was there anything personal for you about this decision when it comes to women's leadership? Yeah, well, one thing happened. We happened to be on a uh, family trip, and we ran into Ursula Burns. and uh, Former Xerox CEO. Yes, and she... Uh, she signed an autograph for my middle daughter and I noticed like a week later my middle daughter had put it over her desk in her room and I happened to walk down to my son's room to help him get ready for bed and I came back in and my two daughters were brushing their teeth in the bathroom and I walked by the Ursula Burns signature and then went to the bathroom and at work that day we'd been talking a lot about makers and women's leadership and, and everything, from, everything having to do with women's leadership and it struck me that I had just walked 10 steps down the hall, but my son, who I love, uh, may actually ending earning more and uh, having a better opportunity only because he was male, and my two daughters, 10 feet down the hall, may have not have the same opportunity. And, and I was looking at the Ursula Burns signature thinking, what is, why on earth would we wake up on planet Earth every day where you have men and women, they're both the same, from the same source, why would you treat those two people differently? Um, and it was just struck me as kind of like a human's rights issue. It sounds, it, I guess it sounds deep, but it literally was that moment where I was like, wow, my kids, they were treating them all the same. They go both go to, all go to great schools, but there could be a different outcome just because of how they were born. And it just seemed at a super basic level, you know, that's something in my position. I don't have, I don't, can't help a lot of things, but that may be one thing that we can focus on. You didn't want it to happen to your daughters. Yeah, I mean, just at a, why, why, why would you let it happen to your daughters? Right. I think if your daughters had some other kind of uh, issue or ailment, you'd probably do anything in the world to help them. And meanwhile, this one was like sitting right here. And, uh, and also I saw how enthusiastic my daughter was to meet Ursula Burns. And She's so, pretty amazing. Yeah, amazing. And, and, and by the way, she, didn't have, she doesn't have any other signatures from any other f famous people. Wow. Up. She had Ursula Burns' signature up. And, and that, that's something that just struck me at the time period, which is, wow, this is, this, is, uh, this is not right. So on that note, when you read that now famous um, Google engineer memo about biological differences between men and women and tech ability, what did you think? I mean, I, I think that, and I've seen it, um, I don't, I think every human is born, not everybody's good at everything, but everybody is good at one thing. And that one thing may be totally different. And I don't think you can stereotype it to whether it's a female or a male. I think it's basically individual. And, and I, you know, the Abraham Lincoln principle of everybody in life is worth meeting if you take the time to get to know them. I think the same thing is true on the skill set side. If you take the time to understand what someone's superpower is, it doesn't matter if they're male or female. And we have great examples of superpower, women engineers and product people at our company. Yeah. And uh, so I don't, I read it. I don't believe it. I don't see it. 
Um, and uh, I feel strongly that as long as you have a superpower and you're in the right position, you're probably going to be successful. Uh, before we move on to your sort of history and growing up in Littleton, Massachusetts, which is a fascinating story, just quickly on, on that and on women's leadership, obviously you were close to professionally uh, Marissa Meyer when she was running Yahoo. A lot has been written and said about whether or not she was judged differently because she was a young female CEO in tech. What do you think as you reflect on it now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one is Marissa and I share a lot of similarities. We're at Google together. Yeah. We both had turnaround companies. And I would, I would say that from the standpoint of what Marissa brought to Yahoo, and I see it every day, she did an amazing job. And I think that from the standpoint of the talent, uh, the products and services that they're in, and really the investment we've made into the headquarters area, Sunnyvale, where a lot of the product engineering and operations leads, we've chosen that that's kind of the centerpiece of the company. That's a real credit to Marissa. And I think that from you know, judging whether or not somebody does a good job or not a good job in the situation Marissa's in, I think I can say it because I'm there. I think Marissa did a really good job mm -hmm. uh, overall in a very difficult you know, situation. So I, I and I appreciate that, having run AOL, um, you know, it's, uh, th those jobs are really, really, really challenging. And the fortitude to do what Yahoo got done in the time period that she was there, and we wouldn't have bought the company if we didn't think it was mm. a great company and, and well run. Did, so do you think some of the criticism that she got was unfair? I think from a standpoint of Marissa being a super high profile woman in Silicon Valley in general, my guess is she, regardless of what happened, she was going to get an outsized uh, amount of press about her overall. And so I think that if you just look, the things I have to look at as an operator, what are the facts? The facts yeah. are it's great talent, great product, there's a billion users. And so if the attention was off of that from her, it probably is more of the societal uh, things that are happening in the world today than it was Marissa. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, look at women's leadership as a top three topic in the world, I think, you know, right now. So I'm, yeah. I, I think that uh, I think she did a really good job. Growing up, let's talk about what that was like for you, because you did not. I mean, it was not your plan to end up where you ended up necessarily in tech at all. You grew up in Littleton, Massachusetts. What, what was it like? Growing up, Tim Armstrong. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we lived, first of all, I had an unbelievable family. My parents are, are incredible people, and they're still alive today, and I try to spend as much time with them as I can. They're my two biggest mentors. I have two brothers who are awesome, uh, and they have great families. And I think I grew, up in a, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were 17 kids, and I was probably the second youngest out of the 17. So, you know, my days growing up were filled with uh, schoolwork and then, you know, really being in group dynamics uh, constantly. And I think as I was growing up, I also got to see a lot of small business entrepreneurs uh, that were in our area. I grew up in a, more of a blue-collar town, but some of the people there really worked hard and created businesses, and I got to work for them growing up. So I, I had a a very active both school and work. I started working when I was probably 11 years old. What was your uh, first job? Uh, my first job was uh, pumping gas at a uh, gas station. My first job was at a gas station. Was it really? I yes. was 13. It was at yeah. an Amoco. Yeah, right. I didn't pump the gas, but I checked people out at the But, that, <laughs> but for, for me, that story, and probably the same thing for you, was uh, you know, being at a small business, and really my older brother worked there too, and, and he is the guy who owned the gas station used to let us essentially manage it. So we were, I was 11 or 12, and my brother was probably 13 or 14. And he gave us, there was a car wash there, so we, we kind of got to run around and, and do things. So and the entrepreneurial seeds were growing 
young. Yes, and then um, and then I in high school started a couple businesses. I got my real estate license and uh, did a whole bunch of other just entrepreneurial things. We one of our neighbors is a great entrepreneur. We started a business, or he started a business, and we really worked with him selling T-shirts at Grateful Dead concerts and other concerts uh, around New England. And so every summer, I essentially did something that was really entrepreneurial uh, over time. And then even in college, I worked uh, while I was in college and had uh, jobs and businesses during college also. So I've, I just, I've enjoyed the business world uh, since I was really young. Tell the story of this, about the strawberry farm. Yeah, so we were. Uh, this was this in college. This was this was in college, and uh, there was a strawberry farm, and I was working with a good friend of mine, this woman Jen Schumacher, who was a friend from college, and there was a strawberry farm that was uh, a bank had uh, taken to a receivership, okay. and it was just sitting there, and essentially we went and talked them into letting us, you know, have the farm for the summer and uh, to do a you pick strawberry farm. So instead of us doing just kind of normal s summer jobs, we, s we went over and said, hey, there's an opportunity here. Let's uh, kind of reopen this for the summer and let people come in and pick strawberries. And it would end up being really successful. I would say I didn't eat strawberries for a few <laughs> years after that because I ate more strawberries that summer. I uh, bet. But, um, you know, but th those opportunities basically taught me at an early age that uh, a lot of opportunity in life you can create if you're willing to take the risk. If and you I, can convince the bank to let you yes, use their business yes, for yes. a little a little while. But then you went into, you dabbled in investment banking, which is very different than the tech world that you ended up in. But it wasn't for you. Yeah, so I, um, after I graduated from college, I worked at a program at Wellesley College called uh, the Explorer Program. I had some of the wealthiest kids in the world and some of the poorest kids in the world huh. together on campus. And I did that for the summer. And then at the end of the summer, I was going to work at an investment uh, bank in Boston. And when I got to the investment bank, I realized like after a few months that I... I went to my boss and I was like, look, I, I think you should probably let me go, like fire me, you know? And he, he was like, what are you talking about? You know, and I said, I'm, this is, I'm not super passionate about this. And I've seen having work growing up, people who are really passionate about things. And two is, I don't think this is my skill set. And mm. the person I was working for was really good at it. So I said, when I look at you work, you know, you're amazing at this. I'm not amazing at it. Um, so I think I want to go do something else and uh, end up leaving. And, and I started a newspaper in Boston. How do, I, I, help me fill that gap. How does wanting to be an investment banker, at one point you were cold calling executives, just like trying to get people to talk to you. How does that translate to the newspaper business in Boston? Well, one of the things I did when I was thinking about leaving the investment bank was to call um, other CEOs or people in Boston. So I was calling the biggest CEOs in Boston at the time. And, you know, obviously many of them didn't want to talk to me because uh, <laughs> for, for, for he'll, good reasons. He'll call you right back. He'll call you right back. Um, but one of the people on the phone, I had been very interested in media. One of the things I was thinking about doing was going into media and newspapers. And one of the, the, the assistants on the phone said to me, she said, you know, what's your story? Why are you, why are you calling here? One of the only people that's ever called here, like asking to talk to the CEO. <laughs> and I, I said, told their story. I said, look, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I have these options. I figure these people have probably been through a lot and they could give really good advice. And she said, you know, I said to her, does anyone ever get through to the CEO? And she said, well, you know, only the journalists. Have you called and said you were a journalist? So the next phone call I 
called. I said, hey, this is Tim Armstrong. I'm starting a newspaper. I really am uh, going to do his stories for, for the newspaper I started was for people who are kind of the, into the 20s and 30s in Boston. And uh, I got through to the CEO and, um, you know, basically. So that got you through. Yes. And, and so that was a really good, great le lesson in media also about how influential media can be uh, overall. Yeah. So that's what really launched me. Like why well, I'm sitting here today is, yeah. is really because of the, the decision to leave the bank. You and do not run media. a newspaper today. You do not have the print problem, but you do run a company with so many journalism brands. It was I believe this conference at MIT, mid-90s, 95, that changed your entire perspective and, and literally made you run out the door to the internet. Right, so when, they, uh, when we were uh, running the newspaper, you know, it was a major challenge because we basically sold all of our stuff, our car, our bikes, everything, and we bought a Quadra 650 Apple and we learned how to essentially do uh, page layout and programming to launch the newspaper. But we'd had to print the newspaper, we had to collect the advertising, and it was a very manual process. And I went to MIT one day um, in the early 90s, and, and I saw Mosaic, the browser, someone pulled it up. And it, as soon as it went up on the screen and they were showing us some of the early internet sites, I said, you know, how do, how do you get the information in the browser? And they went through, and, and I compared it to what we were doing on the Quadra, Apple Quadra 650, yeah. then having to take it to the printing plant. And it seemed like this was just an unbelievably faster, better way to get people information. So literally from that meeting, I walked back, talked to my partner at the time, and just said, look, I think we should sell the newspaper and get into the internet. Um, and so we ended up selling the newspaper a couple months later, and then uh, then I went to, I've only done internet stuff since that day. How did Paul Allen uh, figure into all of this? Paul Allen, of course, of Microsoft fame, but then also somewhere in here, the NASCAR family fits in. How did that yeah. happen? So I went to, uh, happened to be at a NASCAR meeting, and the France family got up that, that owns NASCAR, and they gave a presentation about the Internet. And I, this is after I had seen the Mosaic browser. So I was in the back of the room, and, you know, the, they were kind of saying, oh, you know, NASCAR could be online, that we could sell things. Uh, and after the presentation was over, I went up and talked to them and said, hey, I, I'm, I'm doing the Internet. I love it. You know, I'm trying to figure it out. And they said... You know, if you're really that into it, you should talk. We're talking to this company, Starwave, Paul Allen's company in Seattle, and they're really going to build NASCAR.com for us and those things. And, and in an unbelievable coincidence, I went back uh, to Boston and I had a voicemail um, from somebody at Starwave, which was totally unrelated. They just they were looking around the country for people who were doing internet related things. And the person said, Is there any interest you have in coming out to interview at Starwave? Um, so I got on a plane. Flew out to Seattle, uh, interviewed a Paul Allen's company, and, and uh, moved out there a couple months later. And that was the start of ESPN.com, NBA.com, NFL.com, NASCAR.com. And then Google. And you then. You were around employee 100. And you were the revenue guy. I mean, you were U.S. sales chief. You were always here in New York. You weren't, you weren't in California. But I'm really interested in the moment when you went in and you were interviewed, right? It was, it was Larry and Sergey, right, who interviewed you? What was that like? Yeah, it was, uh, I first met Omid Kordestani, who's the chairman of Twitter now, and then he, after I met him, I met him in New York, he invited me to go out and meet with Larry and Sergey, and uh, we had a breakfast meeting, and I think Sergey came, and what I didn't realize at the time is that, I, I don't know if they're morning people now, they weren't uh, <laughs> back then, so, really uh, so we, had, uh, we had breakfast in Palo Alto, 
And um, you know, during breakfast, we talked a little bit about internet advertising and what the potentials were. And, and uh, you know, Sergey, to his credit, which is something that I realized today was was, uh, and I knew after I worked with them for a little while that they're really good at. You know, Sergey asked me during breakfast. You know what questions? You know, he said, I, "I'm not sure what to ask you. If you were me, what questions would you ask? Would you would you ask you?" And so I. It's not awkward at all. And interview yourself. Interview yourself, essentially. And but I think what was interesting is, and Sergey and Larry are really good at this. They're really thoughtful about how people think and trying to understand how they think. And so it was a great way to do an interview and a great lesson, by the way, in terms of uh, you know letting people interview themselves. Sometimes they'll reveal more than if you're just asking them the questions. So and what did you ask yourself? Uh, well, you know, the big question at that breakfast was, you know, why, why didn't, why wouldn't advertising work on Google, and why would somebody like me, who's in New York, and you know, we had just taken a company public in New yeah. York uh, before that was uh, successful in the advertising business, you know, why would I be interested in going to a place like Google that didn't look like traditional advertising? Yeah. And you know, my answer was I had been using Google, um, a heavy Google user at the time, and it made sense to me that there's going to be a worldwide group of people who are hand raisers of people who are looking for products and services. And if you do a good job matching the information up with commerce, there's probably a really big opportunity there. So we talked a lot about that at, at breakfast, and it was uh, it was really it was a fun. Really, I was there for ten years. It was a really amazing experience. So, what would you ask yourself today if you were interviewing yourself? To be CEO of Oath. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd ask three questions. I'd ask uh, number one: Are you willing to find and work with the most talented people in the world and people who are better at you at some areas than you are yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. The second question I asked is: What are your super super power strengths? And what are your areas where, if I assigned a project to you, who else would you bring in the room? If I said, we're going to go do this project, you have one seat. Who are the other five seats you'd put in the room? And the third thing I would just say is, and I think it's really important, is, you know, if you take the stated strategy overall, you know, what's your passion scale against that? Because uh, one of my other lessons is, you know, I, we, we work with a couple Navy SEALs in our office, and one of them always says it's always darkest before dawn, which is generally before you get to the sunlight where success is, you know, you're really in some sort of a really dark, you know, place, and you've got to figure things out. And uh, I think that takes a lot, especially in the industry we're in, there's a lot of com- competition, a lot of smart people. Yeah. You have to have a real passion to keep going. You have Navy SEALs in your office? Uh, we have some, yes. And you hire them explicitly because they're Navy SEALs? Uh, well, it's a long story, but when I went into AOL to turn AOL around, uh, there's a couple of people that were super influential for me early on. One was David Petraeus, uh, and he, he was somebody who had a lot of help. He actually gave me a PowerPoint presentation one day at a, on the sidewalk. I ran into him at a conference I was at, and he really kind of gave me a way to think about the company overall and how to get leadership and people and a plan aligned. Yeah. Uh, and to this day, I still use that 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 framework. And then second is we had General McChrystal uh, come in from the McChrystal Group, and uh, out of that we met a whole bunch of different you know people from the military sure. and from some of the SEAL teams, and some of those people are still working with us uh, today. One would argue you did so well at Google. You were an early employee. You made a lot of money there. You had a big job you were flying high. Why did you leave? You know, I left Google for, uh, you know, kind of two main reasons. One is I have a personal philosophy around work, which is it's a journey and you should be the most challenged. And that's just my personality. The way I've always been is try to do really hard things. It wasn't uh, hard? Overall, you know, Google, Google was hard, but 
there's so many, you know, I had the opportunity to hire thousands of people on my team at Google and Google was doing really well. So I, I think me leaving at the time period wouldn't been, ha, have been detrimental to the people or to the company or those things. And, and I haven't been there for 10 years. I was really loyal to, to the opportunity there overall. And the second thing is, which has turned out to be somewhat true, is that the world would eventually go into, as soon as content became more ubiquitous overall, that things like content experiences and communities and culture would start to become more and more important. And AOL was sitting there as a real company that had scale, had resources, had a bunch of great brands added, um, and people had given up on it. And so from my, my standpoint, um, like I'm a big Warren Buffett disciple about having you know, multiple puffs left in a cigar that someone's he discarded. And does many smart things. Right, so, he, I, so from that standpoint, AOL to me looked like the largest cigar in the world that didn't have puffs mm-hmm. left. It had an entire you know, cigar to still go. And so I went, uh, to AOL with the vision of basically creating a multi-brand media company on the surface with consumers, so all the brands that consumers touch, and then behind the scenes trying to have platforms that uh, advertisers and partners could use to improve their own businesses. And it's taken us a long time to get to where we are today, but essentially that's the, the, what you see at the company today is why I left Google. Is, is uh, Google is a giant platform, super successful, very well run, and AOL was an opportunity to build a differentiated-looking company that had multiple brands and uh, really would touch consumers super deeply in categories they loved and cared about. When you were either at Google or your role as, as CEO of AOL, did you ever grapple <coughs> with something akin to what Facebook is grappling with now? They, they have to figure out what's going on with these ads and how to identify them and be, be uh, transparent with the public about them. Obviously not the same issue when you were you know, sales chief and, and, and running that business at Google or, or CEO of AOL, but did you ever have a moment of reckoning like that within the company and uh, abuses of a platform, et cetera? How did you deal with it? Yeah, I think there's probably multiple instances. I think any of these businesses that are that scaled that deal with as many issues as they're dealing with, there's, there's probably three or four situations that have happened over time. And I think, you know, one is I think they're, when I was at Google, there was a really big early crisis around this, which is the machines are running the advertising. Um, how, how do you know it's targeting? What are you doing in terms of uh, the brands being associated with not great content? So when we first, there's a product at Google called AdSense, which is now oh, of ten, course, tens yeah. of billions of dollars. When we first launched that, that was in my group at uh, Google, many times advertisers would end up next to questionable content. So right out of the gates, the issues, some of the issues that happened at Facebook today we saw in the, in the mid-2000s. And YouTube's been dealing with that. And YouTube's been dealing with it. And uh, from, from our standpoint, uh, y- 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 YouTube is, and Google and Facebook are going to, ha- as the world expands with more consumers, more publishers, more properties, it's, they're going to have struggles from a technical standpoint. So the issues I think that you're seeing in the industry today with Facebook and some of the issues that have been at Google have been there over time. And what happens is kind of like an accordion or a traffic jam where there's massive growth in terms of internet users or mobile users. There's masses of growth in content and things basically get to the point where targeting and those things have to get updated and then you see some of the issues uh, you're seeing today. Right. And then what happens is they'll catch up with people and technology and then they'll get another runway where things are working properly. But in a, it, it's a negative in society for the way it's, it's landing with society, some of the things that are happening. Yeah. The, the reverse side of it is 
it's a signal of how big and how important these areas have become in terms of human usage. Uh, it's, overall. L- it's like during the financial crisis when the, the core of the argument was, are these banks too big to fail? Right. And essentially, some of them were and right. had to be saved. And if they weren't like Lehman, we saw the fallout. Right. Are we at an inflection point for some tech companies right now? Are they too big to manage? Does something have to give? Yeah, I think... Um, the answer is I think there's a, a co- economic shifts happening because of con- because of consumers are moving to digital and mobile. And th- those, those shifts are significant when you see what's happening in the, the industry. I think the companies that are getting bigger and bigger in those spaces over time are taking on more responsibility yeah. uh, for the things that are happening. So I don't, I don't believe it's time for the companies to get uh, broken up or those things. But on the other hand, if you go out five or ten years, it's important that there's a shift in terms of how the consumers understand those businesses, other businesses work with them, and even companies like ours. We're, we're a big platform company. We also work with them as well. So you're going to want to know in the future what the ecosystem looks like yeah. and how you play in that, that ecosystem. One of the questions I think a lot of my techie friends have brought up to me in, in the new combined company that you run is Tumblr. There hasn't been a lot of news about what happens to Tumblr. You've got a big, it was a, it was a billion-dollar bet by Yahoo. You've got a very loyal, big following in it. What, what do you see it as? Yeah, I really, I like Tumblr a lot. I like David Karp, and I like what they've done. And uh, I was fans of theirs before uh, Yahoo bought them. And uh, so I'd, I'd say I'll give you a signal. We just did the Charlottesville concert for Unity. Yep. After the issues happened in Charlottesville, we got approached to be the partner for them. And out of all of our brands and assets, we said, you know what? Tumblr would be great at this. I was down in Charlottesville. We had everyone from Alabama Shakes to Chris Martin, Justin Timberlake performed. We had uh, 40 or 50,000 people from Virginia uh, came. It was, it was honestly one of the top three or four moments for me as an American also just to be there. But most importantly for Tumblr, t- that is what Tumblr is great at, is having passionate audiences, communities, there's tons of music stuff on Tumblr. So from my standpoint, that's, a, that's an asset that's got hundreds of millions of users that are all digital, all passionate. They want to contribute content. They want to be involved in it. So if you want a signal for us of what we're thinking about Tumblr for the future, the fact that we chose Tumblr as the, as yeah. the real promotion path and platform okay. for the Charlottesville concert, we're really passionate about it. So it's here to stay. I certainly hope so. And I, the investment we're putting into it right now, we're, we're excited about. In the middle of all of this space, and a word I can't believe I haven't uttered yet in this interview, is Amazon. And you, Tim, have been warning people in, in your space, do not count Amazon out as a formidable competitor. Why? I just think Amazon has done an amazing uh, job, and I think people look at Google and Facebook as uh, really the two big platforms that are kind of in this space overall. But I think if you take a step back, and I think Amazon's doing this you know, today, and they've been really, I think, going a- after it in a more detailed way. You know, they have done a very nice job of bringing services to people that they care about in a human-driven way with Prime. Yeah. They've done a really good job of having a marketplace. They've done a really good job of growing services like AWS and some of the other things they've done. But probably most importantly in our business and media and advertising, they've done a good job in content. And they've done a very good job in terms of taking their information and their relationships and starting to get into advertising in a bigger way. Look, that's, that's competitive for us on one standpoint. Two, it's an opportunity for us. We're big partners with Amazon uh, overall. And so I think when people talk about Google and Facebook, they typically leave Amazon out. When I talk about the industry, I think you have to put Amazon right in there with those with those uh, other two companies. And our, our opportunity is to be uh, 
instead of a stool with three, we want to be the, 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 I think, the fourth leg on the chair. Do you talk to Jeff Bezos about this stuff? Uh, I see Jeff uh, once in a while, and, and uh, we, we have partnerships with them that are... Um, that we're excited about uh, overall. So I think Amazon's a company, um, my guess is we're gonna work more closely with over time. But essentially don't ever count him out. Don't ever count them out of any space. I think Jeff is probably one of the best business people of all time. Yeah. And uh, he's done a very nice job. And we, we had one of the best board members actually at uh, AOL, Rick Delzell, who was the CIO, CTO at uh, Amazon for a long time. We learned a lot of lessons from him. And I, and I think um, the amazing thing about Amazon is Amazon went through a long period of time where they were low and flat and people didn't understand it. And I think you look at, you know, what Jeff and team have done today, um, what people forget is, you know, the fortitude they had to go through a really long period of time where people may not have understood what they were doing to their vision. So as a fan of the internet and fan of the digital economy, I, I really respect their story and respect what they've done. So let's talk about your family and the influence they had on you. The advice your father gave you. The night before you leave Google, you leave this very secure job where you're incredibly successful. You go to try to get some more puffs out of the uh, the AOL cigar, if you will, with Warren Buffett's analogy. What did your dad tell you the night before? Yeah, I talked to my dad the night before we did the big announcement, and and uh, he's somebody in my life has given me just unbelievable advice. He's he's uh, I like to say there's people in life that understand more than they know, yeah. and he knows a lot, but he also understands more about life uh, than most of the people I know, and he said to me on the phone, he said, look, Tim, you know, you've had a successful career. You know, many, many people know you from what you've done at Google and some of the other things that you've done. But, you know, tomorrow's a new day and the people at AOL are going to count on you not to look backwards, but look forward. So really, when you start tomorrow, you have to burn the bridge behind you. There's no going backwards. So when you get there tomorrow, tomorrow's the first day of the rest of your life. And I don't ever worry about what you did in the past and worry about the people you're going to work with. And that, that absolutely turned out to be the most significant advice I got from anyone because it allowed me, we went through very difficult times at AOL to keep moving forward really quickly. I mean, let's remember the time that you were coming into AOL, it was, you know, I mean, it was coming out of the not so successful, shall I say, uh, AOL Time Warner marriage, obviously CNN's parent company. It went from this huge valuation way down, and you there you were in your team to sort of p- to pick up the pieces. Right. Um, wh- what what was that like? It was, uh, you know, so someone the first day at work, somebody said to me, you were at a company that went from zero to 150 billion up at Google. You're going to a company that went from 150 billion yeah. down to a billion at AOL. Um, but I shot right back at the person and said, you know, AOL is much more powerful and strong than what you realize. And really, it's up, I think Jeff Buke's vision at Time Warner, where he realized that the asset might be better off on its own. So you had the combination of some things that worked really well. One, you had a strong asset in AOL. You had strong uh, talent there that people didn't recognize. And then you had a CEO in Jeff Bukes who realized that this asset actually could become more valuable on its own. And I think when you, if you're a Time Warner shareholder back in those days, Jeff Bukes needs a, he needs a standing ovation for what he accomplished. And if you're an AOL, uh, if you were an AOL shareholder, you got a benefit out of it. But the biggest benefit is the AOL consumers, what, what people had kicked to the curb in terms of the usage, the people who used AOL. I, the thing I feel most happy about is we kind of reinvested back in that business. Not many people believed it could grow again. We got it growing in two and a half years or two, two years and three quarters. More rewarding to lead a company from that position up 
than to sort of keep riding high at Google, do you think, in retrospect, more rewarding, fulfilling for you? I think it's, uh, you know, the early days at Google, every day mattered that sure. we went to work. And I could say every single day mattered at AOL. So I think they were similar in that regard. I'd say for, you know, for AOL, um, I have learned more at AOL in the six or seven years I've been there than I did uh, in, in almost the whole rest of my career wow. because it was so intense in terms of some of the things that we went through. Um, and I, I think also I'm really happy a lot of people we worked with at AOL over time are off running other companies or doing amazing things. So it's also been fun to just see like what happened to all the people we worked with over the years, and they've, they've really become successful in other things, and, and a lot of people have been successful at the company also. Your wife, obviously, the night before you took the job, right, as you're becoming CEO of AOL, says to you, do you know what you're doing? And asks you, can you get the people around you the help to turn this company around? Yeah, my wife is somebody also who has had really uh, good advice. As a matter of fact, when I was going to Google, I had another job offer to go to a company that was three times the money and, and a much bigger job, better known company, and a bigger responsibility. And you turn and I was that taking down? At Google, I turned it around because of one conversation I had with my wife. My wife said to me, which business are you most passionate about? And she said, when you, I hear you talk about this other company, you're, you don't sound passionate. When I hear you talk about Google, you know, that's who you are as a person. Why don't you go to Google? And so that was a helpful conversation. I think in the AOL conversation, you know, she was really pressing me to say, you know, do you know what you're doing? Do you have a plan? Are you going to be able to get <laughs> people you worried you weren't up you know, for the around job? you? I think she just, she, she, you got to remember the time period, AOL was kicked to the curb and everyone said it's broken. I talked to another super influential person the night before I went and the person told me, the company's broken, Tim. You're never going to be able to fix it. I don't know why you're doing this. is a suicide mission. I don't know really? why you would ever go spend time uh, doing this. And, and, you know, and I think that's what sparked the conversation with my wife. And my wife just said, look, the bottom line is, you got to be really sure you know what you're doing. And as it, as it turned out, I think I knew partially of what I was doing, but I was a first-time CEO, first-time turnaround CEO, those things. So uh, while we made it successfully, you know, there was a lot of bumps um, on the way, and, uh, and I was as prepared as I could have been, but I had a lot to learn in that process. And you're still learning as you're on this new journey of, you know, how does Oath succeed and how do, how do we bring these two big, well-known companies, AOL and Yahoo, together under Verizon? Aside from work, when you go home to Connecticut and you go home to your three kids, teenagers? Teenagers, Teenagers, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always easy. Um, wh what do you want them to say about you, Tim, at the, at the end of the day? Um, you know, my dad is X. What, what do you want them to see as who you are and what your success means in, in their eyes? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is I want them to say both about my wife and I that we're hard workers. My wife uh, works and she's, she's actively involved in Makers. Overall, so I think the most important thing is the work ethic. I think that that's a gift that parents give their kids. Uh, if you can't give them anything else, you can show them that you'll work hard and take chances uh, as a parent. I think the second thing is actually to not be in their way at all. Um, overall, and I, I think that's that's a thing that I think about a lot. Is you know when I was growing up, I had the opportunity of my parents being great mentors, and I had an open field of to things to think about and my mom used to say all the time growing up our job is to parent you but not break your spirit and i think that that's the same kind of parenting advice my wife and i try to take which is all three of our kids are, are different i have jack hope and summer and uh they're all unique and and awesome in their own way but uh you know our job as a parent is to is to help them find not just what they're passionate about what they're interested in and really kind of help them along in that that regard all three of them like different things and uh 
you know, we have a lot of fun together uh, overall, and so I, I think it's really about letting them be who they are, teaching them a work ethic. Teaching, there's two principles we have, work ethic and how you treat other people. And you do those two things, you know, we'll help get behind you on the rest of it um, overall. But that's uh, parenting, as you know, is a everyday I'm learning I'm just going to say good luck is the hardest job I've ever done, and I'm just getting started. <laughs> Tim Armstrong, thank you very much. Thanks, Bobby. I appreciate it. Nice thank to you. have you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. And ahead this Wednesday, we'll have a special bonus episode with former Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson. She opens up about becoming a central voice in the fight against sexual harassment and weighs in on the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, including multiple charges of rape. How she is helping so many other women fight back against the harassment she lived through. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.